Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. How sustainable is it to sell March on Law? It all depends on how sustainable as a living, as thriving, being able to have children do this. Yeah, you can actually do it if you if you hustle, but it's a hard life. And I don't think anybody really, I think you kind of fall into it more than you want it because I sell art on Law just to have fun. So I can talk to people so I can, now I don't have to run around to see everybody. I see everybody at every show because they know I'm stationary. So at one point, all my friends come and see me. That's why I do it. I know I'm not going to make any money. If I cover expenses of the shows and travel, that to me is sustainability. That's awesome because I saw fish for free. That's how I make a living. It's like all I do. I don't know what I would do without fish. Okay, so my basic story is I do this for fun. I do it to basically connect with people. And I've made some of the best friends I've ever had just by selling art. It's been a little over a year now that I've been um, fully self-employed. Brooke Hancock runs at Babacool. Those sunglasses with crafty frames adorned with lyrics and lightning bolts that you've definitely seen on lot. They've become a staple of fish culture starting in the 3.0 era. It's hard for me to really track like like when they started really gaining popularity. Because yeah, I've been making them since 2015. And they were like, they definitely, like I, I first sold a couple on my Etsy, I think. And mm-hmm. that was the first time I ever sold them. Just a couple here and there. And then Summer Tour 2015 came around and that's when I brought them onto lot. I think just on the lot, like I think people started noticing them and that's where they kind of like gained a following. But I I guess it's been a combination. Probably Instagram helped a lot too. Mm-hmm. Just like seeing all the pictures circulate and everything. But yeah, it's it's kind of been like a slow, steady climb, you know, and then just recently it started to like snowball. Still run the business like out of my bedroom. Like my studio and desk and everything is in my bedroom. So it's hard for me to think about like having another person in here. Like I'm like, where would they even work? So before I started making the sunglasses, I was actually mostly doing flower crowns and different sort of like floral hair accessories. And I make these little macrame friendship bracelets and I figured out how to make the Fishman donut pattern. There's definitely the tribal aspect. So, you know, the donuts go around and I used to hate the donuts and never put them on anything, but now I kind of understand and appreciate them as the like the silent beacon of <laughs> letting anyone who's a fish fan know that you're a fish fan and I, pr- I really do appreciate that. But um yeah, it's very it's very tribal. There is some sort of like, you know, free-spirited fashion to a lot of it, sort of that festival vibe. But um, as far as specifically fish goes, people just want to wear their, their colors. And Section 119 didn't, didn't start off as, as a business. 
Yeah, I thought it started out as a section at Madison Square Garden. Four years after the Baker's Dozen, it's still trending on Fish Twitter. We had a custom clothing business in New York City, about three blocks away from MSG. And, you know, since we have access to kind of making clothes during the New Year's run, we would just kind of make clothes with the donut pattern, right? There'd be some nice jackets. Everyone's getting dressed up on New Year's. You know, you throw on some nice jacket with some lining, you know, make a donut tie. And, you know, there were years where people were like, oh, oh, I love that. Where'd you get that? And, you know, we're like, we made it. And so that started to kind of pick up organically. When fish rolls into town, one of the more visible aspects of the fish scene is the lot, the parking lot. And if you're not sure how we're going to fill up the next hour discussing a concrete parking lot, then clearly you haven't been to a fish parking lot. The fish parking lot scene has elements of a bazaar, an open air market, a swap meet, a student union, a flea market, a coffee house, an art fair, and of course, that popular American pastime, a tailgating party. Unlicensed vendors not affiliated with the band or the venue get there early and set up booths, ranging from folding tables to elaborate pop-up stores. And there, in spots usually reserved for parked cars, they set up shop. Collectively, it forms the main street of a tiny village. You can buy unofficial t-shirts and other merch, or you can trade a ticket to that night's show for a show happening 3,000 miles away on the other side of the country a month later. You can search for jewelry, pick up a new glass pipe, grab food, dance at an impromptu disco party, reliably yet randomly run into friends, get handed a copy of the tour zine Surrender to the Flow, chat about fish rumors with total strangers, drink a cocktail or coconut water right from the shell and shop till you drop acid all of it can act as an outlet to direct or deflect your nervous pre-show energy some call it pre-gaming the most crowded row or rows in the parking lot usually the one closest to the venue's entrance is called shakedown the name is a holdover from the grateful dead scene and a reference to the song shakedown street The classical definition of shakedown could also be called a shake-up, a radical restructuring of something hierarchical in nature, such as an institution or corporation. I guess we could make the metaphor that shakedown as we know it is a physical and actual place where there's a shakedown of consumer culture, marketplace economics, and otherwise regulated industries such as alcohol or cannabis. Sure. When was the last time someone asked you for your ID when you bought beer on lot? One for three, two for five, Oh, those? Five for 20. No deals. A common other definition of a shakedown is a swindle or an extortion. At those prices, that definition may apply. Another definition of shakedown is a thorough examination of a person or place. And in that way, we're going to spend this episode of Undermine Shaking Down Shakedown. Let's go to the lot. With each new stop along any particular fish tour path, it can feel, and maybe even look, a lot like the circus just came to town. Yup, but it's our circus, and it's what we're talking about on this episode of Undermine. You drove all day, checked into the hotel, it's now 4 or 5 p.m. on show day, and you head over to the venue. Welcome to The Lot. I'm Tom Marshall, and I'll be your guide as we cruise through the concrete jungle that leads us, eventually, to the hallowed gates of that night's fish concert. What's this? Well, we gotta pay the parking attendant somehow, so hang tight, riders, while we cover gas and tolls. We'll be right back.
There are a lot of people to meet here in parking lot A, and it's all a blur of faces coming and going. Even the landmarks, Wormtown Trading Company, the art of Ryan Kerrigan Gallery, You Enjoy My Socks, Unbathed Grilled Cheese Guy, can all move or disappear entirely. From a sociological perspective, the lot scene forms a creative hive and its own art scene, complete with its own celebrity artists and art collectors. Let's start with introducing you to someone you might already know, if in name alone, painter-artist A.J. Mathsay. I've been drawing my whole life. My parents supported it from a very early age. You know, they sent me to like drawing lessons. You know, even in school, I would always focus more towards the art side of things. And once I got into high school where you can kind of pick and choose a little bit more, I mean, I remember my senior year of high school, I basically spent like seven out of the eight periods in the art room. But to be honest, I, 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 the poster thing never even crossed my mind until I was well out of art school and out of college. When I was in art school, I was a printmaking major, so I learned the majority of the printmaking techniques except for silkscreen. But my focus was really more on lithography because of my mentor in school, saw my drawing style, thought lithography would be the perfect fit for me. It turned out it was. AJ Mathsay has created posters for Fish, Dead & Company, Umphreys McGee, and so on. His favorite process is stone lithography. So you're literally drawing on a piece of limestone with grease pencils. And the whole process is, is based off the fact that oil and water don't mix. So when you see something like block printing, it's very positive or negative. It's, that's why there's no gradation to anything. You have to sort of like crosshatch and stuff like that in order to get any sort of gradation. With lithography, you can get tonal drawings out of it, if that makes any sense. So you can get like everything from a dark black to a light gray. It's just based on the process. So when you think of like, like the old monster movie posters, like Frankenstein and, you know, stuff from like the 30s and whatnot, or even like the old magician posters and stuff like that, those were all lithographs. Back then, it was like, the commercial printing. And then once, you know, digital came around and all that, that kind of died out. Lithography will always have a soft spot in my heart. To do lithos like that, it doesn't really make sense on, on a commercial scale anymore. The amount of time we can run like a thousand block prints in my studio right now, we could maybe do 50 lithos. It's very time intensive. It's very, um, there's a lot of chemicals involved. You need a real specialized setup in order to do lithography. Daryl Norson is a graphic designer and art director who creates album art and posters. I don't think it's like, to me personally, I don't think it's like any different than like, you know, how like Jim Pollock kind of works in a way where he's like, oh, I know this about this venue and I know this about this. And it's like, what kind of like weird fantasy world can I like come up with? I mean, he's definitely a major influence for me. He's been a major influence for like, 25 years at this point for me. Like, I just love his stuff. And I think, like, in some ways, me personally working with Fish these days is like, well, how do I do my version of, like, what I would like to see as Pollock, you know? And it's like, not try to step on his toes too much. Hopefully not at all, because, like, he has his own style. But, like, you know, make it a weird, like, fantasy world of, you know, what I remember is, like, tour shirts, like, from 97, like, my first one was like the, from the 97 tour and it was like a fish holding like a briefcase. And then there's like a bunch of irons on the back. Like it's a weird shirt. I kind of wish I still had it. It's like long been worn out, but it doesn't make any sense. But I look at it and I'm just like, oh, sick shirt. Like I would wear that again, you know? And I hope that's like what people see my stuff, you know? Strolling down the lot, let's take a turn into 5A. Meet back at the car if we get lost. Here's Brandy Davis, a shakedown artist who, like most people parked in these parts, is decidedly not a local. She's from New Zealand. I love selling my art on lot. Uh, and I really love selling my art in uh, campgrounds. It's just, just being like, I've always sold something at a fish show. Like at first I was doing the patchwork thing and then I was making these little, um, Grateful Dead bears that I needle felted and I sold those for a while and then when I started making the posters I just really like submerged me into the scene and going going on full tours and just being a part of the community and getting to know all of the other people crazy people like me that go to every show and um, the other artists 
But I just feel like really alive and energized and really like onto it with being in that environment. And I really love campgrounds the best because I can go from camp to camp and sit and hang out with people and, and really do what I was always too shy to do, which is go meet my neighbors. Now I like have, have an excuse to walk into your camp and sit down and have a beer with you. Um, but yeah, the fish community is really so friendly and welcoming and encouraging. I've never really experienced such an environment where people just really tell you, please keep making art. And that's such a, a nice thing to hear, you know, even if, if they're not buying it, they're encouraging you. There's fan art and there's fan art. If you could see my lips, you'd see that it's spelled with a PH and it's a proper noun. Fan art began as a book dedicated to all the wonderful and talented fish fans that have created, yes, art, inspired by the band. The book did so well that editor and educator Pete Mason parlayed it into curated art shows where these artists could actually sell their wares while also nurturing and giving a community space to a sub-community of fish fan artists and fan art fans. Fan art shows are well, off-lot, usually held in nearby hotel banquet rooms on show days or night befores. Artists of all levels and mediums participate, and some of their creations are genuine gallery caliber. In fact, the art is of such quality that it has spawned true fan, that's with an F, art collectors. Many of these collectors probably started their collection with some random find in a pop-up tent along Shakedown. Or perhaps they got a numbered show poster at the merch stand when they went looking for an event t-shirt. Let's hear again from Leo Aria, who we first met a couple weeks ago in episode 12 about being on the road with fish. Leo made it to the venue and has been hanging out in the lot since we saw him last. I see a thriving community. All right. So what I see different between old fish fan art and new fish fan art is I have to give Pete Mason a shout out the fan art organization. He, he's he been doing it as almost as long as I've been in fish and he's been curating and helping artists who at first used to walk around a lot, carry these really heavy portfolios with, you know, that art can be heavy. It, I have to bring a suitcase that's 50 pounds to dicks alone. And that's not a lot of art. So it used to be them slinging and walking around and now it's gotten to the point where because certain artists like Mastay and Welker who have transcended and become icons, you know, Pollock, they're icons. Now guys like us and girls like us can go into a hotel that he rents and people can go and, and, and shop. I went to my first fan art show, not as a vendor, but I discovered fan art in, um, I believe it was 2014, my first time doing a whole tour and went to a fan art show in Chicago. And I just thought it was so cool. And at the time I was only making, you know, the little macrame bracelets and my flower crowns. So I didn't really have like a solid hustle going. Once the sunglasses got popular, that's when I started considering actually looking into and applying for fan art. I first heard Fish Sparkle was on Dr. Demento. That was a Sunday night radio show with like comedy music. It was just, yeah, it's a silly song, but there's a lot of Fish songs that are silly. That voice is Pete Mason himself. So we're not just talking about him behind his back. So I made it a point while the iron's hot, let's get all of the fan art together, all the stuff that people made. Let's make a book called Fan Art with a, with a PH and let's compile it and sell it and make some money for charity. That that project and, and that's very nascent internet. There's no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram. It's message boards and emails and whatever you can Google. I did, and I, I had to rely on my, the connections I had, and it's, it was a long, slow process. And as time went on, and artists wanted to spread the word about their art again before Facebook, before social media took over, and it was and it became so much easier to just throw a photo up on Instagram and tell everybody the price. Modified uh, fanart.net to allow sales on the site. 
and a team of us would post anything that was sent to us as long as it met you know the basic rules no logo no likeness no use of certain words like fish or game henge and if people didn't donate money they donated goods they donated shirts pins stickers like oh hey you helped me make so much uh, money i'm just gonna send you a whole care package you know keep keep what you want just give the rest to charity so i'll just went in the charity box so uh at caesar's on november 2nd 2013 i held the uh first ever fan art show with about 20 artists uh mockingbird foundation was there and i was i always tell pete i love you but i like the old-fashioned way because i'm not trying to make money i'm trying to just meet as many people as i can what he's done is pretty amazing i got to give him a lot of credit for the, the art scene he's helped a lot of fan artists Name's Greg Carey, and I'm the owner and CEO of Section 119. First fish show was December 29th, 1995 at the Worcester Centrum. I was a bit under the weather. I went with a bunch of high school friends. I remember just being mesmerized, a bit confused, and certainly just intrigued you know and the name was you know the name we're just playing off the spicy chicken sandwiches they, they were a hit during baker's dozen you know so I, I thought it was kind of a nod to to fans right that section 119 was where you go for that spicy sandwich and so it had some notoriety within the the community and so we're like hey let's just call it section 119 and for us you know this type of business is more about being part of the community right how do we emulate the values of that community for us, the lot is not like the best business opportunity. It's a way for us to go and interact with customers, right? Which are essentially vans and, you know, people that we're selling this stuff to, right? So the lot provides like almost market in business terms, right? It provides direct marketing research for us where we can get interaction with fans because in an online world, you know, you're, you just kind of miss some of that intimacy sometimes. And we closed our, we closed our shop in 2020 um, and we're getting away entirely from the custom suit business. And this, this is our, our business now. We're not doing any of that. And so we don't have any touch points with customers. So the benefit for us is, is to just get in front of people, right? And talk to them about what they like, what they don't like, you know, just talk to them in, in, in general and be part of that. But from a business standpoint, it's not the most profitable kind of allocation of our time. We can, you know, work from home, sell stuff online, you know, find people remotely. So we're partnering with Fish on Film, put together a coffee table book. So all of these photos from the 90s where everyone was going to shows and bringing their, you know, their Kodak disposable camera. Right. We have a 250 page coffee table book of, you know, tour during 1.0 of all these like unseen photos from the scene. I've been doing art my whole life. It started off with, you know, filling in the margins of my notebook while not paying attention in class. That voice is my friend, Danny Steinman. I've had a parallel career as a teacher and art was just something that I was doing. And when I started writing first about the jam band scene, I started to see this potential for using Facebook as a marketing tool. And, and at some point I said, you know, I make all this art, maybe I can sort of use Facebook as a way to get my artwork out there. And, and my artwork has always been about a scene, which I'm part of, which is the jam band scene rooted mostly in fish and the grateful dead. And that's why I think the work I do is genuine. So eventually I transitioned from writing to doing the artwork as well. And I, I've never stopped writing. That's a big part of the way I communicate with the fan base online. And eventually, you know, nothing happened overnight. This is my fifth year in pushing this career. And about three years ago, after numerous prodding, people telling me to make pins, make pins, I decided to make my first pins. Did I say Danny Steinman? Maybe I should have used the name you may know him by, Pin Daddy. The most iconic fish pin that I did was the design for the Water Wheel Foundation. Absolutely, you know, it was it was a benefit pin. Um, it raised $20,000 for charity. It was fantastic. And then I have some of the, the fan art pins that are the fish pins, but I'd say my favorite is, is the llama pin, the Taboot Llama. When I got into it, the pin game was sort of like a murky backwater. 
It was very toxic. There was a lot of territorial type of stuff, like you can't do that, you can't do this, very communist almost in their rules and imagined ethics and whatnot. But I came into the pin game and I, as always, I did things my way. And since then it's really changed and exploded and it's positive. And what I did in my community and my pin group has rippled outwards into this community where many other people are now making pins and they're prospering and the, the, the post office is prospering and the bands that I'm doing work for are you know, benefiting. So it's been a real symbiotic cycle. Let's talk to lot artist Brooke Hancock. For the most part, I've just always been like really crafty. I enjoy making things. I don't always call it art. Maybe some people do, but basically I would just combine, like I would run my Etsy and then also work like part-time retail, like, you know, fun places to work, like cool little hippie shops around town that were just chill environments, you know, and would like give me time off so that I could go on tour and go to festivals and everything. Never really had much of like a career job. Speaking of birds, let's get a bird's eye view of the whole parking lot with jam band scholar, author, and Relics Magazine editor-in-chief, Dean Budnick. The Grateful Dead lot scene was, I think, very instructive in terms of people just figuring out what to do, you know, how to organize themselves. And on the security side, how to deal with these individuals, because in many cases, it was the same teams. There was different guidance on the fish side versus the dead side. But in terms of being at the venue, I think the venue's grown to at least come to understand what the fish scene was going to be like because of what had happened. I, I would say, listen, I have, not that I have mixed feelings about it, but when I think of, of the lot scene when it comes to fish, at least initially, it just seemed sort of charming to me in a lot of ways. And so pure and so organic because the Grateful Dead lot scene was just out of control by the time you got to the mid to late 90s. And you know, it just felt like tie-dye corporations at times, people there for all the wrong reasons, individuals just trying to go from show to show to sling drugs who weren't necessarily there for any of the right reasons. And by contrast, even after Jerry passed and the fish lot scene and inherited some of those individuals, it really did feel like a fish lot scene. Like people were there because they wanted to commune, they wanted to discuss the band, they wanted to connect about something new, something different. And that was really life. I remember just on the Grateful Dead side, right, My, I grew up in, in Rhode Island and Rhode Island got burned. There were, there were too many people outside the show, so the dead couldn't come back to Providence. Dead couldn't come back to Hartford. So, you know, Grateful Dead lot scene had really come to, to break my heart in certain respects in that it really seemed like it was going to take the whole ship down. Although I would say, again, the people who came out to see fish and were out there outside, especially let's say in the in the 90s, on into the early aughts, were people who just really loved fish. And that was that was a real treat. That that felt that felt really good. At the beginning, I think outside those shows, there were just a lot of people and you recognize sometimes you in many cases you literally recognized one another. Same people you'd see them, show after show. Same people, in many cases, you were talking about fish online. So it was awesome to sort of kick back, have a beverage, have whatever one was going to have, maybe even you know, trade some tapes before you walk inside. There, there was just that immediate connection. And it's not necessarily better because that's something that, that I, I really feel strongly about. I, I think it's, it's easy to say it was better then because, it, you know, that was the beginning for, for us, for a lot of people. And I never want to do that. I think... Musically, for instance, there's plenty of wonderful fish happening these days. So, too, there's plenty of wonderful community out there now. It's just more expansive. Having said that, though, listen, at the beginning, there were there were fewer people. It was smaller. You would see the same individuals. You'd see Waldo show, show after show and whatever he'd be doing side or whatever the people were, whatever, whatever they were doing. What was fun for me? I grew up in New England. I saw most of my shows in the Northeast, but then I'd go somewhere else. It would be fun to see the same, a lot of the same people down South or out West. And the other side of it too, is because 
the fish scene was so much more connected through the online world than the Grateful Dead scene was, that it was a lot easier to connect with people before you went into shows. So if I was visiting some other part of the country or even going up to Canada, let's say, going up to see shows in, in Montreal or Ottawa, I'd know a few people because I'd already, you know, I'd met them online and I'd go out with them, you know, maybe before the show to, to grab a meal or just, just hang out with them in the lot beforehand. I mean, obviously that, that still happens now on a much larger scale, but it, but it was new then. And it felt really, really good because Fish was so new. But sometimes it's fun to, you know, just shoot the shit, talk about what happened the prior night, talk about what might be coming up, talk about, you know, when you might see this individual or what the band might be doing, speculate on what's going on. I mean, the lot is always a great source of information and occasionally misinformation. There's intel to be had. And uh, I think that's part of the fun of it. You might recognize Dean's voice, by the way, as the guy who handed you a homemade Great Went Wheat Brew in a giant tent city that sprung up overnight on a decommissioned Air Force base in Limestone, Maine, that one time in 1997. Budnick was around in the early days and has seen the band and their scene grow exponentially throughout various growth spurts. And with growth spurts come growing pains. Well, I mean, listen, it's just in aggregation. You get more people as the band became bigger. Particularly, I think, maybe that started with Clifford Ball. And once people understood how many individuals would be inside a fish show or going to a fish show, then it drew in some additional elements. And I'm not saying they were all bad, but I, I think the flavor of it changed a little bit. It was sometimes maybe a little bit harder to find your tribe. But on the other side, there were plenty of tribes who were there. And then there are the 12 tribes. If you've ever been on lot before, you've most likely seen a burgundy and beige multi-tiered bus parked off to the side with the doors open. The bus, known as the Peacemaker, is owned by the 12 tribes cult and is used as a way to evangelize Fish and Grateful Dead fans. The cult believes... So they believe in the whole Bible, but they don't call themselves Christians. They look down on every other religion. They are God's children. Everyone else is wrong. Kate Wiseman is the daughter of the cult's co-founder, Ed Wiseman. And let's be clear, 12 Tribes is a cult. Yeah, so I was born in 1979, and a year later, they had a big parade in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and the whole entire cult marched in the parade and took off their shoes and clapped the dust off their feet from a Bible verse that, like Jesus said, if you're not received, someone doesn't receive my word, then I'll clap the dust off my feet and like leave the town. Kate was indoctrinated for 30 years before she decided to leave. The cult has been showing up on lot, fish, the dead, music festivals since the 80s. So my best friend Tabitha, I was nine or eight when the restaurant opened. I was nine when it opened, and she was eight. My chore, every morning I had to make mayonnaise because we made our own mayonnaise for our sandwiches. There were nine dinners on the menu, and I would help my mom every single day from like 6 a.m. to like midnight we were in there. I mean, she would let me to go, go to bed earlier sometimes, but like she was there that late, and sometimes I was. We would do these summer fests, and people would come up with the bus and play music and dance we would have these festivals and all these people would come and we did a winter fest the same thing and just to like attract the vultures are swarming in we're about 10 minutes from doors and there's just enough time for you to run back to the car to make sure you have all you need for the next five hours put your nightshades on dangle your stash and meet by the box office we'll be right back Even though it might look like it at first brush, the lot scene doesn't just happen by itself. The vendors, the venue, the promoter, and the local police all secretly, if largely unwittingly, conspire to make it happen. Let's hear from Don Straussberg. I am the uh, co-president of AEG Presents Rocky Mountains, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I have been booking fish in Colorado on and off since 1990. 
That includes all those fabled Red Rock shows and more lately, Dick's. When Fish came back, I think it was 2009, we obviously wanted to go to Red Rocks. It was just an obvious hit list. Years before, there had been some issues at Red Rocks, but we all knew that uh, we would be fine. And we did four amazing nights at Red Rocks. After that, we wanted to be creative and we wound up going to the First Bank Center and then we went down to Telluride. At that point, we were looking at all of our options and it felt to all of us that while Red Rocks is incredible, there just wasn't enough space in Red Rocks to meet the demand. And in reality, what was gonna happen was all the people who really wanted to see fish in Colorado were gonna have to come up with crazy amounts of money for scalpers or they were gonna get shut out. And at the end, as cool as Red Rocks is, isn't very cool if you can't get in. And the idea came up to go to a Dick's and we knew that the venue was willing to be flexible. We had a lot of space to spread out. We were able to do some camping at the beginning. So all that was the signs that said, let's give it a try because we wanted to be inviting. We wanted people to be able to come enjoy the show. So obviously one of the benefits of the Dick's site is there's ample space in the parking lots so that after every car is parked, there is some leftover space. We know that obviously at a fish show, there's a level of vending that's gonna occur. So instead of trying to fight it and let it be spread out across the entire site, we work closely with the band, we work closely with the venue and all the local authorities to essentially create a space that is appropriate for that activity. So the people who um, wanna do it can go to a certain place that it's central and that the people who wanna get in and out with their cars and don't wanna have to navigate all that can go and park and do their thing. So I think it's a win-win for everybody. Sometimes if you're lucky, if it's an outdoor venue and you're in the right spot at the right time, you can overhear a little bit of sound check. Other times you might stumble upon the show's accidental opening act as bands have been known to set up in the parking lot and play for free, hoping to attract new fans. At the same time, bands like the Disco Biscuits had a lot of success early on with late-night after-shows in nearby bars and venues, often within walking distance, bringing fish fans into their own flocks one at a time. In the case of Umphreys McGee, some of their early fans can trace their first exposure to the band back to fish shows at Deer Creek in 1999, as Umphreys performed at a nearby packed campground to a literally captive audience of fish fans who had just gotten back from the show, had nowhere to go, and were already tuned up and in mid-rage. Let's hear about it from someone who was there. I'm Joel Cummins. I'm the keyboardist and sometimes singer for the band Umphreys McGee, and I have been a fish fan for a long time. Saw my first show in 1994 at the UIC Pavilion, June 18th. And since married a, an even bigger fish fan than me, who makes me do things that I probably wouldn't do at this point uh, to go see the band. So, you know, the, the, the love for the music definitely carries on. Like many of us, Joel picked a hell of a first show. That UIC Pavilion, June 18th, 1994 show is the stuff of legend. Fish even gave it the official release treatment. It contains a celebrated version of David Bowie that has a full-on mind-left-body jam. UIC Pavilion, and uh, we were playing Divided Sky, and we got down to this quiet part where it gets silent. We're getting quieter and quieter, and then it became silence. I had my eyes closed, and I could feel the crowd, and I started to, because improvising is you're trying to translate what's out there already, the greater pattern of things, and sometimes it feels like it's coming through a hole, and you couldn't play a wrong note if you tried. You're just floating, and at that moment, you were in the middle of it, and I started to see colors, like, I'm not kidding, floating around the room, and I realized that 
I could almost, it was silent, but I could see what we were translating. And as soon as I could see them, I started improvising, but I didn't play anything. I did everything in the sense course of improvisation except the actual notes. And as soon as I did it, the whole place erupted. <gasps> it was like, <gasps> and it just tears started rolling down my face. And it was at that moment that I knew that it was truly bigger than me. By all means, it remains a famous show. But Joel wasn't impressed. And I actually went to that show by myself, dead sober by myself. And I remember seeing a couple friends there, but, you know, I just I just wanted to kind of soak it all in. And I remember leaving with a headache, like my mind was literally exploding and felt like kind of a greatest hit show. And he actually loved it. I should clarify one thing, like I had a headache, but it was a good headache. Joel went to a few more shows that fall, including the band's swift return to the UIC Pavilion that November. And then, as the story so often goes, he hopped on summer tour. Sound familiar? And we decided we were going to try our hand at selling food on the lot. We cooked up a huge batch of spaghetti, made our own marinara, and then brought a little toaster oven that we could plug into the car to do like hot garlic bread. So we made the sloths, the Italian spaghetti. And it, I mean, this stuff sold like hotcakes. It was crazy. I mean, we, we you know, it's one night at Deer Creek. And I think at the end of the night, we're like, we spent 80 bucks on all this and we have $750 here. We're like, we're going, uh, that was what I was like, this is fun in the rest of the tour for me. You know, I had like a couple friends places to stay out on the East Coast from Notre Dame. And yeah, I'll, ne I'll never forget that. I was like, we could do this a lot there. We could, we could make this happen. Like these guys all have grilled cheese here. We got, we got hot garlic bread and like some decent marinara, you know. that Thanksgiving show weekend in uh, Chicago. So at that point I did have, a, um, you know, I had like a, a bunch of my high school friends that were home and I think I bought like 12 tickets and gave them to all my friends. I was just like, you guys, you gotta come with, I'm not even gonna make you pay, just like check this out. I used my sloths Italian spaghetti profits. Indeed, Joel's story is a common one of a certain time and place in the fish verse. But then he joined a band of his own Umphreys McGee, and as they started to play and tour concentrically outwards from their little perch in South Bend, they created a local scene inspired directly by what Fish had done 10 years prior in Vermont. They even took note of the markets where Fish flourished outside of their home region. When Fish returned to Deer Creek in 1999, Joel returned as well, this time bringing his band with him. There was a campground called Dead Creek. I think we rented the stage from South, the staging from South Bend and brought it down and like we brought generators and stuff. And so we were pretty much just like a throw and go, had the whole operation there. And they were just like, yeah, you guys can, uh, you know, just play as long as you want. <laughs> Yeah, so we set up in, in the campground then. And I, and I should say also, so one advantage we had playing at the Dead Creek campground was we were playing for a bunch of new people, but we had also, you know, a lot of our friends were going to those shows. And so we just told everybody, camp at Dead Creek. So we had, you know, 150 or 200 of our friends that were super amped for us to be there. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't very much like arms crossed in the front row trying to convince people. Pe people were raging for sure. And, you know, we had a few of our originals already that, that, that people know and love. We probably weren't playing very well, but, you know, songs like All In Time and, and Slacker and, and Hodge and uh, Divisions. So we had, we had some decent songs in the rotation, but we didn't really know how to jam yet. So it was kind of more about just keeping the energy up. Those definitely felt like a, a huge thing. And it was cool just to have that like, you know, we probably played from midnight to 3.30 in the morning and did two sets. While Joel Cummins and Humphreys McGee were performing originals and kick-starting their career by playing a campground near a fish show, a young and impressionable Andy Greenberg found himself so blown away by Trey Anastasio's heroic guitar playing 
that he was inspired to learn guitar for himself. But he didn't stop there. He didn't just want to play like Trey. He wanted to be Trey. It's not as creepy as it sounds, I don't think. Andy is living his dream and now fronts one of the preeminent Fish tribute bands, Runaway Gin. Literally listening to Trey, that early 90s stuff, just totally launched me into wanting to be a guitar player. When I went to see the show, uh, I think that the, my primary purpose for being there was was just to hear Trey play guitar. And I was not at all prepared for the entire experience. I didn't realize that there was this whole scene and that, that, that there was going to be tons of people there that were my age and that totally blown away by the scene. I remember when the lights went down, I was like literally speechless. I was like, what, where am I right now? What is this? What is going on? I was, I'd seen Paul McCartney in concert and uh, the Eagles and like Herman's Hermits and just all these random classic rock bands. And this was just so different. It felt so different right off the bat. But, as Andy found out, the Full Fish experience is about a lot more than just the guitar player. It's even about more than just the band. Sure, sure, it's music first and all that, that's important. But, as we've been detailing in this season of Undermine, there's something special that happens when you and your friends go on the road with Fish. You end up finding a string of magical moments far above and way beyond the ordinary. And by the time 2013 rolled around, I was actually in a position where I could do a tour. And so that was the uh, the first time I really kind of went out on the road for more than just a couple runs. And that was also a totally different experience. I think going into it, I didn't have expectations other than to meet people and listen to good music eat good food, check out areas that I had never been to before. And that was kind of the scaffolding of, of what I what I hoped to build. But it ended up being uh, a lot more than that. It was, uh, it was really, I realized how the way that you conduct your life day to day and night to night can feed the band and how, how the way that they conduct themselves from day to day and night to night can feed the, the, the audience. It's really like seeing behind the curtain of the Wizard of Oz or maybe seeing inside of a machine, like how it all works. Before that, I had only seen like snapshots and bits and pieces, but I, I think I kind of started to put, to put it together in 2012 when I did Jones Beach Run and then I went to the SPAC Run after that. It's, I started to kind of see how all seeing all these people night after night and being around them and it, having that same experience and then waking up and, and let's do it all over again could lead to, to more of a, a hive mind kind of thing. But doing the whole tour, it was like, wow. I mean, it, it's, it's, hard to even, it's hard to even explain the level of connection that one can achieve by, by going on the road with, with fish. It's just so engulfing of, of your whole life experience. I hope it's not like being in a cult or something like that, but it's like, you know, you wake up and everything that you do is in preparation for the show. And then you kind of try and figure out what your headspace is that night how you want to experience the show and you kind of try and figure out where the band is and what they're doing and then you try and figure out like am I thinking about this too much and then you try and figure out like am I am I listening to what they're playing or you you have so much time you know that you're gonna have the next night and you had the night before and at some point it's not that you take it for granted but you can start to really get under the water so to speak as opposed to just kind of like swimming around on the surface. And once you get under it, it's, it's a vastly different experience. It, it, I feel like it changes the way that you, that you see the world. And it kind of took me back to the, to big Cypress, you know, the, the, just the immersiveness of, of existing in a, a world that revolves around this one thing, which is fish, you know, and then, you know, you think about older uh, incarnations of the same kind of phenomenon may have been in like a religious thing or people traveling around with a theater troupe or circus or like, who knows, but yeah, the collectivism, the, the, the way that you realize that everything that you do impacts somebody else and everything somebody else does impacts you the way you can see that, that cycle emerge and unfold so quickly, like kind of instant karma, more instantaneous 
can put you in touch with being a human uh, living amongst other humans. Um, you know, and music is obviously the thing and the, the band is the thing that's that everything's revolving around. All of it is, is a huge part of the experience. It's almost can be more important, you know, where you're standing what you ate for dinner, uh, the phone conversation that you had before the show, you know, what bad news or good news you got or whatever. I mean, it's just like, man, all these things. And then feeling like it, whether it's imagined or real, whether those things are actually impacting the, the song selection from the band and the way that they're playing certain jams, trying to figure out like, how are they so in tune with what's going on in my head? Or is it how is what's going on in my head so in tune with what they're doing? And it's like this whole cycle. It's it's an absolutely magical thing. It's hard to articulate if you haven't experienced it before. And um, I don't know that uh, it's like this this circle that you go around, but it keeps moving up like a helix. So you keep seeing the same things over and over, but now you're seeing them with your past experiences and and with your with your uh, the changes you've made in your own. Uh, mental construct and you know hopefully everything's always going up but you know i think i think it it's a good way to to lose control and let go of control of everything and then you know take it back without really taking it back just kind of let it let the universe steer you and not try and control things so much and it can lead you to a magical world where you can manifest things and find little opportunities that no one else can can see that will put that will change the the day and the year and the life that you're living it's it's so much it's it's hard to <laughs> explain it's hard to experience it's, it's huge it's just it's massive it's the universe is it the universe or a galaxy, or just the fish solar system. Regardless of the cosmology, one common experience that seems to be both astounding and abundant among anyone who's in it is the concept of synchronicity. Like when you see a dead possum on the side of the road and fish plays possum that night. Yep, they knew. Yes, that was just for you. Or you're bummed because your car was towed and they play... Back to Andy Greenberg, and though he plays in the well-respected Fish tribute band Runaway Gin, here he's talking about the real deal. It's back 2013. Night two, um, I remember they debuted The Architect, a second set, I think it was right out of Carini, and that was just like, they did, we had been talking about um, uh, Mind Left Body Jams for so long on tour, and everybody's like, what, what's Mind Left Body Jam, yada, 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 and we were kind of talking about, you know, Jefferson Airplane and all this stuff. If, I, if my memory serves me correctly, they went from that Carini into what sounded almost like Dear Prudence, but it was, it was basically a mind left body kind of jam. And it was just like the, the thing that we had been talking about for a couple of days. And, uh, and it was like, what, what it's, it's actually happening. And it, you're looking around at your friends. You're like, this is it. What, what, uh, how do they know? And then they went into the architect after that, which was a debut. And it was just like, what, like, this is, this song is like completely uh, putting into words this feeling that, that, that we're having. And then, you know, I remember flash forward to the gorge. Um, I think it was night two at the gorge. I remember it was the first set opener. Uh, and it was like, there was again, they opened with the architect and it was like, I looked around and it was like mind left body jam. man. it's like, this is that, that's it. It's, it's all connected it's just this whole cycle of life and, and death and rebirth and waking up in the morning and, and doing what you do and going to a show and having fun and then going to sleep at night and then waking up and, you know, and then the same song plays again, but now it's in a different place. It was just like this weird synchronistic kind of experience at that moment when they played the architect again. Um, I mean, I can, I can think of lots of different examples. So can we. Enough to base an entire podcast on. Let's hear from two additional musicians whose lives have been directly affected by fish experiences. My name is Holly Bowling. I play the piano and I also play keyboards in Ghostlight.
My first show was New Year's 2002. 2.0 was the first time I got to start actually seeing the band live. I caught the show at MSG and then the three Hampton shows that followed. And it was kind of a funny first show experience because I had been waiting to see the band since I got into them over the hiatus and was super, super, super excited. But everyone else in the room was also insanely excited because they had been on break and, you know, it was the first show back. So it was a really intense first show experience to have the energy level be just through the roof, you know. You know, I've been into the band for about 20 years, so it's meant a lot of different things to me over the years. It's been a place I go to lose myself. It's been a place that I've found myself. It's been a place of community for me. I've met so many of the friends that are near and dear to me still through seeing Fish shows. I met my husband at Fish, but it's it's just been like a central part of my life for a long time, both the music and the the whole experience of the you know traveling circus and the really great community of people around the band. Like so many fans, the community and the vibe of the scene was part of the early appeal for Holly. But for anyone who discovered her via her piano interpretation of the Tahoe Tweezer, you know that the music and improvisation of the band means so much more. You know, I hate picking favorites. I especially hate picking favorite shows. I know there's an arc to a good show and that's that's a thing in and of itself, but I find myself more and more listening to specific jams and pieces of improvisation. You listen to the band long enough, I don't always need to hear the same songs over and over again, but there's so much new stuff that I feel like they uncover in their improv all the time that uh, I, I definitely would say I lean more towards favorite jams than favorite shows. And I, I think my, my favorite jam is uh, probably something you can guess. <laughs> You know, the thing that really made me fall in love with the Tahoe Tweezer and a few other things from that era, too, are as the themes like those amazing landmark jams, but there's multiple ones of them stacked on top of each other. You know, it takes you through a whole journey where there's like multiple rooms to the house, you know, that all have their own feel rather than it being one thing. So like Joel and Andy before her and like so many other musicians who have been directly inspired by the music of Fish. Holly's own creative development benefited directly from her close listening to the band's improvisation. Fish exists not just as a creative mind for their own interests, but also, as we've heard throughout this episode, for that of the expansive community. as soon as I discovered the band and started listening to them, it was it, it instantly had a big effect on my playing. I got into them during the first hiatus, and so I was diving really deep into the catalog and kind of picking apart the music and getting everything I could from it, never having seen them. But, you know, I, I dove in with both feet and was pretty obsessive from the beginning. So uh, I think that, you know, really intricate composition of some of the early stuff, as well as the freedom of improvisation were things that started sort of twisting my musical direction right from the get-go as soon as I started listening to the band. There's some tonal and technique stuff that I, I kind of stole. One example is, you know, Trey will sustain a note on his guitar for a really long time, and I was really looking for a way to recreate that on the piano, and it's an instrument that, you know, doesn't hold a sustained note forever like the guitar can. And so I discovered this thing called a wand that's kind of like a next-generation ebo that you can hold near the piano string, and it'll just sustain the note uh, forever, and you can pull different overtones out of it and stuff. So I initially started using that thing and stumbled across it when I was trying to figure out a way to play that one note in Divided Sky and hold it forever. And then it kind of unlocked all kinds of ideas for me that I've ended up using for years since then of just cool, weird sounds that you can get out of the piano and unconventional ways of pulling sounds out of my instrument and stuff like that. So, you know, I think in the quest to imitate some things that I really loved about Fish, I ended up discovering some things about my own instrument that I wouldn't have found otherwise. I ended up discovering some things about my own instrument, about music, about my friends, about my country, about myself, that I wouldn't have found otherwise without fish. This sentiment rings true for all of us who find ourselves in a massive stadium parking lot, wading through pop-up shops, sipping on an inflated heady topper, making our way to the venue. 
Another artist who has found creative inspiration in the music and spirit of fish is... Uh, my name is Karina Reichman, and I'm a musician, a bass player. My first fish show was the third night of the Jones Beach run in 2009, which I believe is 6509. Um, yeah, that was that was incredible. And, you know, very, uh, you know, uh, an unorthodox introduction to the band where I was friends with Trey's kids. And, you know, my friends from school were friends with Trey's kids. And it was sort of like this small, you know, world of like, you know, friends of friends of friends. And long story short, I kind of got invited to the show and uh, watched from side stage. It was basically just me and my friends from school, which is amazing. I had never heard a note of fish, but I like downloaded the studio chalk dust torture and the studio bouncing around the room before the gig and I was like oh okay I don't know about this this is uh this is fine but what I like you know excited to check it out I didn't even know that their dad played guitar I had no idea um so <laughs> it was uh it was wild and I I went in with an open mind and totally enjoyed it but to be honest like I was 15 at the time and I think I enjoyed sort of like being shepherded in like backstage to Jones Beach and all like the everything that went along with it sort of more than the music that first time because it was sort of just like a crazy experience and then at the end of the show trey's wife sue said to all the kids like all of us she was like all right guys like you know when they hit their last note you run don't walk to the tour bus and i was like wow like this is so exciting and they encored with a day in the life and uh as soon as Trey hit his last note, we were all like, go, go, go. And we all ran to the tour bus. And uh, Trey's tour bus literally dropped me off in front of my parents' apartment building on the Upper West Side right after that. And my doorman was like, Karina, is this how you're balling these days? And I was like, I don't know. What? Like, yeah. <laughs> and that was my first fish show. Wow, I wrote the lyrics to Chalk Dust Torture and all I got at my first show was a hand stamp and a beer that I paid for. Carry on, Karina. I was into Led Zeppelin. I was in a lot of punk rock. I was in a lot of classic rock, just big, thick riff rock from the 70s. I was also into the yeah, yeah, yeahs and like block party and a lot of that indie rock from the mid 2000s. It wasn't until I saw Fish that I was like, oh, wow this is something musically that I can dig my teeth into, you know, and I, and I really did. I incorporate a ton of fish and, and Mike's playing into my style, I would say, uh, you know, poorly. Um, but I definitely, I definitely try and I, you know, to me what I get from, I find that Mike is a rather busy bass player and I feel like I gravitate very much to that and I don't know if that's because I play in so many trios where you sort of feel like you're not overplaying you know you're you're leaving too much dead space in that sense I feel like I really incorporate a lot of sort of Mike's bass flavor whether subconsciously or not but and just you know playing along to these tunes I've been playing along to them for years and years and years and years and sometimes you know there will be like a, a tweezer you know from a tour or like you know the simple from this last tour whatever it might be where i'm just like oh my god let's let's just sit and play along to that you know and i listen to what he's doing and i'm like oh yeah okay just just various choices and of course you know it's not like we would make the exact same choices or anything like that but they resonate with me in a big way In this episode of Undermine, we went on lot to see what's shaking on Shakedown Street when fish comes to town. The lot is a lot of things to a lot of people. Next week, we'll eagerly get in a long line to have somebody intrusively search us and then rip up that prize ticket that we went through so much just to get our hands on in the first place. 
That's because we'll finally make our way inside the venue. It's doors and time to go inside. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media, the leading music storyteller. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Written by Benji Eisen. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Produced by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, Brad Tenbrook, and Don Jenkins. Production assistance and writing by Noah Eckstein and Julia Schuster. Social media by Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastry. Show art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all our interviewees. We'll see you next week. Oh, God, the, the lights going down. That energy right there. You know that energy of when you're walking in and maybe you're chatting and you're talking about, ah, what did they play last night? Okay, or like, what's the score of the baseball game or whatever? And the lights go down and everybody cheers and the band comes out and trade us this little wave. And then who knows? That's the best part for me. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.